I'm Jay. I'm James. Hi, I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the podcast with still, it's the third episode, still only names starting with Jay. Jay, do you, uh, do, I forget if we already did this, do you want to uh, introduce yourself or plug anything? So I led development on a game called Hypnospace Outlaw. It came out earlier this year. It's set in a f- sort of a weird alternate reality fake internet with a fake operating system. It's a very good game. Thank you. I still haven't played it. Well, you might want to wait because we're soon going to release an update. I don't know, maybe in at the end of the month. I would like I would like to do it around Halloween, maybe um, for thematic purposes. But it's basically the it's going to add a lot of modding support so people can add all of their own pages and their own entire internets and their own applications to the operating system so all right james uh how about you do you want to talk about something you're working on or the main thing i've got going on these days um i've got a fantasy console called galapagos and uh hopefully i'll release it this month i keep saying i'll release it this month or next month or something like that um but anyway i was able to successfully make a game for this past Udam Dare using it and And you can check that out yeah you can check that out uh, on my itch page so triplefox.itch.io is this console like Pico 8-esque where you or or is it where you're just defining rules for yourself it is definitely comparable to Pico 8 I'm going with a different set of principles for it so like Pico 8 is trying to be very minimal you know, it has the 16 color palette and the 128, 128 resolution and all those restrictions. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going for like something fully unrestricted because that's just programming. I'm trying for something where it's like, like the set of principles I have in mind are like, oh, it's sustainable. So that means in theory, anything you make with it would last a long mm-hmm. time. And that's like driven all these like very specific feature decisions about like what formats am I using for everything and will people be able to read those? Very um, cool. Can I support this device? If it is, is like supporting this other extra device a problem later on? So I'm like, well, standard stuff like keyboard and mouse are okay, but you know, VR headset is probably not. Right. Cool. Yeah. All right. You guys ready for some? topics this is the third time third time i've done this and i still need to find this the right tab in the spreadsheet yeah i was confused by how many tabs you had i was like did i put my thing in the right one and i you I, sure I did pretty sure. yeah no I've, I've got i've got tabs galore and it's over definitely over complicated right now all right james tell us about storytelling class oh yeah this uh um, every semester I've been taking one thing at City College, like a night class. And it's like the kinds of classes that you wouldn't normally take to graduate or get a degree. It's like all the extracurriculars, all the, the fun stuff. stuff. Yeah, the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this semester it's storytelling, which is run by like the theater arts department. And uh, in this class, you learn how to tell stories. Which, like, that that sounds like, of course you can tell a story, like creative writing or whatever, but this is 
very much like the fundamentals of storytelling. Um, so like gesture and voice and, um, you know, just a minimal story that you can tell in five minutes. That does sound neat. Yeah. Have you been using this while telling this story? These uh, new skills? Maybe. I don't know. It, it <laughs> like maybe, it, maybe it's already working. We haven't. So, so while we did do just write stories for like the first month or so of the class, now we're producing stories. And I'm actually tomorrow, I'm going to be at the Randall Museum and performing several of these stories as a play for little kids. <laughs> That's great. Very cool. Yeah. Children are probably the perfect audience for a, a simple story because it. You can probably read their faces a little bit. And... Yeah, they're they're not going to be expecting something too super sophisticated. And in fact, they would demand the simplicity. And if you are trying to learn just the the very principles of storytelling, you can't hide bad bones with good ornamentation um, <laughs> because they they need to they, they need it to be simple to understand it. Yeah, We're, we had this uh, textbook. And the prompts are all very like myths and legends type of stuff. So like, oh, tell a story about like a castle in a faraway land. <laughs> right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I'll tell I'll tell some hero adventure story or whatever. Sure. Um, I didn't end up writing anything like well, actually, no, I did do one like that. Uh, it was about a, a a kid who's like in this village where the kid grows up. Uh, his name's Lester, and he, he like everybody in this village is supposed to become a monster when they grow up. And Lester's like, well, but I don't want to be any of these monsters. I want to be a different monster, or maybe not a monster at all. And he, he like he goes around and he's like asking, you know, how did you become a monster, and why 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 did you choose this monster? And eventually goes on a quest and uh, figures out which monster he wants to be. He becomes a dragon. One of the one of the high ranking monsters. <laughs> yeah, I really like the idea of like a monster job fair, where you're you're going up to each of the booths and asking people like, "What's yeah, what's it like to be a ghoul?" Yeah, uh, one of the, the things that uh, like I put in there is like, "Oh, his dad's an ogre, and his dad's dad was an ogre." And all of them were ogres 20 generations back. But Lester was not up for being an ogre. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Sometimes he, you just don't have it in you. Yeah, he didn't want to be a dire wolf heifer or a giant <laughs> slug. <laughs> for okay. some reason, I'm reminded of the Netflix original film with Will Smith in it from a few years ago. Uh, what was it? Was it Bright? Bright, right. Oh, with I missed that one. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it wasn't that good. <laughs> it wasn't that good. It's it's a modern day buddy cop story where Will Smith and an orc, I guess. Uh, it's oh. it's like there's fantasy creatures who are very clunky, sort of. Uh, I guess metaphors for you know race and class issues. Yeah, but the, uh, I think the orcs were supposed to be black people, but there were yeah. also just black people in the movie. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was pretty muddled. Yeah, okay. You're reminding me of Zootopia now, which also did like race and class metaphors in this muddled way that wasn't... I would say that it almost worked. 
I guess with both of these works, like you're dealing with um, a story that is being effectively told by hundreds of people. You're going to get little uh, bits and pieces of each one of their voices. And maybe with animation, especially because like each animator is going to is responsible for a lot of the characterization, the, the just through the animation itself. Yeah, all the little details. And, and that's one of the things um, doing this class is like, oh, because there aren't any details, like I just ha- like literally like one sentence I can add or subtract a ton from the story. Yeah, that's neat. Now, you're making me want to take that class, except I don't want to go to San Francisco every night. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else does a class like this. The guy who runs it says, oh, like, this is just my thing. And if I, I've been doing it for like 20 years. I've been taking a German class, and it's in a place called VHS Volksschule, which means oh. the people's school or something, which is sort oh. of like a school you go to for these kinds of classes or a programming class or learning computers, like a community uh, uh, college thing. But uh, anyway, I passed this cork board with all of these classes in German. My class is a German class. That's the only reason I'm there. So I can't really read the, the papers like a lot other than like the titles and the classes sound like so much fun. And I'm mad at myself for when I lived in the United States, not taking anything like this, because to take a storytelling class, I, I, yeah, it sounds very tempting to me also. I remember going on, you know, a trip to Italy and this happened to basically happen. It happened almost identically when I went later to visit went to Berlin with my wife. Uh, we went to a, a bunch of interesting buildings and a bunch of museums and lots of like places with of cultural interest, and then we came back to the Bay Area, where where which is full of museums and other places of cultural interest, and have never gone to any of them. Oh yeah, I mean that's what tourists do, right? <laughs> and and that's what you do when you're on vacation. And museums, I think, in Germany at least, end up being worth it. Uh, but from the, but like tricking myself into actually going into a museum. Is like another thing, I guess. Yeah, I I feel like um, I'm I've got a secret weapon here in that I really want to show my child interesting things. Mm. Uh, so like taking a kid to a museum that feels like it's so much more justifiable for as a time expenditure mm. uh, when you're when you're a busy adult to um, take a child to see this stuff. Like we went um, we went apple picking. There was just oh. this like. There was this orchard uh, around here that was one one day they just let people in from the public to go apple picking. And it was actually an enormous pain in the ass because like there was a huge line and like it was just like it was the sun was hot and we had to carry apples around. Um, Yeah, I mean, what they're doing is they're exploiting your labor. Right. Yeah. And we paid to do it. (laughs) Well, we kept the apples though. So like it's it's them being able to sell these apples without bothering to pick and package them. <laughs> but I I could justify it in my head like even though I didn't enjoy this at all, I was like um, this has got to be a super interesting experience for my kid. And my kid is like 13 months old. He doesn't know about apple picking. <laughs> but but he I'm sure it was like just interesting things to look at and and observe. And like that's enough. Right. That's all you can yeah. do for a, for a 13-month-old. Right. 
I often like if people post pictures of their uh, one year old's birthday parties or, or whatever. Uh, I used to think they don't know what this is. What are you doing? They're, that's how they learn what it is, though. Yeah, that's how they learn what it is. <laughs> and that's why, like, I keep talking to my kid, even though he can't understand me, because, mm-hmm. like, that's that's how he's going to fucking figure it out. Like, even though it feels ridiculous at the time. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but there's a Twitter account I just stumbled upon called Don't Know What That Is or something like that. You uh-huh. may have seen it, but it's it's a bunch of people who... When they've never heard of something, they just reply and they're like, never heard of it. Oh, maybe it's never heard of it. And sure. and and it seems like a a a, a like they're they're very proud to have never. Have right, heard of else. Why things. else would they just go through the effort of pointing it out? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I guess that's what what's a little confusing. It's like. Often it's like um, some artist won a Grammy or, you know, a film won an award and then people are never heard of it. And (laughs) often it's just things that it boggles the mind that that someone has never heard of. The the example of this that comes to mind is um, when Arcade Fire won a one like best album or something like that. I saw a collection of tweets like who the hell are Arcade Fire? And my favorite one was the one that spelled hell, H-E apostrophe L-L. And then I saw like in response to that, a video making fun of hipsters who were like appalled, like, you don't know who Arcade Fire is? Know who Arcade Fire is. Like as an order, they were yelling at people, know who Arcade (laughs) Fire is. Yeah. Like I'd be embarrassed to not know things. (laughs) Well, that's, that's actually not good either. But yeah, I mean. I mean, not maybe not embarrassed, but I, I like maybe it's, it's not Google something. It. It's not something you would like. If if someone has is talking about something on Twitter, you don't like, especially someone you don't know. You don't reply to them saying, uh, "I don't know what you're saying. I don't know. What, <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, know this right. word." Yeah. So so there's a metaphor that I always have for all those very crowded internet spaces, which is that you're at a bar and you're talking with your friend. And then a hundred people come up to the bar and they ask you what you're doing. Uh-huh. You know, oh, like, right. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you're in a public space. What? You're not supposed Right. The expectations are just kind of all over the place. Yeah. And so in the end, like, what I've decided is that, like, if I post anything on, like, Twitter or any of these platforms, it's more like I'm putting out a product than I am having a conversation with anyone. Right, because everybody's coming at it from a different context. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you make a statement, even in the context of like the people who follow you, it can get retweeted outside of that context. And then you're just out in the world uh, with your words being misinterpreted. Yeah, no, it's really important to, and like, I don't even know how you address this as a, if you're trying to produce interesting tweets worth reading, but you have to, at least go into it knowing that your words are going to be read in every possible context and not be surprised when people are misinterpreting it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I wanted to talk about, um, since this is, uh, this is the first topic Lords that is all musicians. Um, I wanted to talk about this song that I heard 
on uh, it was in a Whole Foods. I heard it over the PA system. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's something like Propizio Chitara. Yeah, the, and the, it's a pizza song. Is that what it's? Is that what it means? I one of the I pizza songs, but it has pizza in it. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And I had heard this doing my grocery shopping, and my jaw hit the floor. It was just so enthralling how banal it was just like someone took the time to write this piece of music that has that fills like three minutes and has almost no actual content to it It sounds like uh, a mood. A it, it mood. Kinda, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it kind of does. Um, I, I, it, it's instrumental, so I was lucky that I had, like, I forget if it was Shazam, but I had something like that on my phone. And, like, if this was 20 years ago, I just would have wondered about it for the rest of my life. <laughs> because there's no way anybody else has, like, paid, atten- paid enough attention to find out the name of this song. It sounds almost like, um, like someone was trying to, literally trying to fill the space and they had a bunch of chunked up guitar samples like here's samples you might use to create like a guitar part and they just sp- sprayed them all into the daw in whatever order and there's your there's your guitar line yeah that's how i would do it if all i had to work with were loops of guitars right well and then there's also the the accordion solo which is like 3 seconds long and like four notes and just <laughs> yeah, and just fades I, I, out I, I, The accordion, I was like, oh, cool, we're going to get an accordion solo now. And it just, it just has, it lasts for about four seconds. And yeah. then the guitar comes back. It's very strange. It doesn't even continue playing, like, with the guitar. It just... Probably yeah. because those were the only notes they had in the right, sample maybe. set. I've heard this over a prank video before. One of these prank videos where at the end they show a clip of a baby laughing so that you know it was it was funny. So it's like Marvel Cinematic Universe music. Yeah. <laughs> I like the, the idea of the baby there, like to remind you, oh, yes, all the, the, the things you saw in the past few minutes, that's not cruelty. That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost sure I've heard this song elsewhere, too, probably at a supermarket. Like, Yeah, I'm just surprised that a supermarket would play this because most of them just play, you know, pop songs, right? This hasn't been a thing to have music in most places in the u.s for a while so the the album this was from was called the band was gypsy cafe ensemble and the album was like music for italian restaurants or something like that well i guess a supermarket is an italian restaurant some of the time yeah it's interesting that it was so unremarkable to you that you wanted to look it up as opposed to something you're that was was interesting so you wanted to look it up yeah it, it's it's I'm, I'm i'm not really sure how to articulate it but it was unremarkable in such an interesting way <laughs> that i had to know more i guess you don't want to distract people in a supermarket i don't know uh well sure yeah so but it's... but like regular pop songs are w- well boring enough all right uh next topic 
I think there's the, a segue here. Yeah, there, there, this is this is what I was thinking. The segue, Jay, uh, you had something to say about library and production music. Do so, you want me to read you your entire prompt in case you forgot some of it? I'm looking at it. Okay, great. <laughs> so while I was making planning things for this hypnospace world, uh, I was looking a lot into library music and production music because because a large part of what I think of if I think of 90s tech or or like operating systems or whatever are these like instructional videos or advertisements and they I don't know if they generally have this but in my memories they often have this sort of production music or you know with 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 a lot of fm synthesis and Mm -hmm. like it sounds like maybe a decade old at that point but the little arpeggios like like synthy arpeggios that signify technology and um yeah yeah, and uh so i started looking into like well there's a twitter account called prefab fm it's made by neil c Riga. yeah it pulls library and production and stock music out of a database and and Mm -hmm. posts mp3 previews with the artist name and everything and that kind of blew my mind because there's an artist name and an album name and then so i went on uh spotify and searched for these album names and there were just all kinds of just albums and they were they were by generally a single person or at least in the in the sort of late 80s and into the 90s and early 2000s that set of production music i was looking for is generally like one man studio produced stuff you know and um i got really into a lot of it <laughs> Some of it is by people who were in sort of legendary or at least in my mind, legendary bands from uh, who just went on to do production music, I guess, because they had to stop doing their avant garde weird stuff and do something profitable. But, <laughs> right. Uh, That's actually a thing where there are a lot of musicians who are good as session musicians and they aren't like front men. They aren't good at marketing themselves necessarily. So, like, that can definitely be, like, a career path for them is, like, do production music or do, do arrangements, do, be in the background. Yeah. So, right. I mean, you can tell on these albums that these people get nerdy still. Like, they get they get in there and, like, are really obviously enjoying making it sometimes. Sometimes it's very, it's just mm-hmm. as avant-garde as their previous works. But yeah. they... They put they attach a mood to the title like intense escape or, you know, uh, (laughs) or or something like that. Uh, Productivity or something. I, I will pimp one. Artist is David Vorhaus. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. V-O-R-H-A-U-S. But he has a few albums. He was in the band White Noise. He was one of the members who started it back in the late 60s. And that was one of these early, early bands to do sort of, you could say, proto sampling. They just uh, cut. They did a lot of tape cutting and and. but yeah, kind of sort of prog a little bit, but a little bit psychedelic rock. But but uh, I was I was just surprised to find that that uh, 
he because that band was so avant-garde and so strange to see that he jumped over to library or production music, which at the time I thought that's like the complete opposite of what he was doing. But I think it makes a lot of sense if that's if if you're very experienced in a studio and you know how to get all kinds of different sounds uh, together and manipulate them that it, naturally you you can make you can, you know, make music to suit all kinds of uh, needs, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, the other part of this is uh, there's this sort of production music that it kind of bugged me for a time. It, it might just be like old man yelling at cloud type stuff. But in the mid 2000s, there were there was I don't know if you could call it a genre or I don't know. It's like one song but with a lot of variations of hand claps and like bells and ukuleles. <laughs> and I've heard it in a lot of corporate uh, contexts and also any Facebook video mm-hmm. where they're advertising, I don't know, kitchenware or like Kickstarter products. Oh, yeah. Kickstarter products would be <laughs> definitely probably number one. Yeah, do you think that that um, these uh, the ads are on like a ten year delay from what was popular? People are like nostalgic for like what was what was what music was I listening to ten years ago? And isn't it great that this Kickstarter ad has that same sort of music in it? Maybe on Audio Jungle or wherever they buy it, it's just cheap now. Oh yeah, that's when the discount <laughs> kicks in. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. D- did you end up licensing any of that stuff for Hypnospace Outlaw? No. Uh, most of the the music is just made with our sequencer, and I just made it uh, that sort of stock music sounding stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, and then there was license anything like uh, you license things in terms of like letting your like your friend let you use his prog rock album. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. So we had. Uh, I yeah, I have a friend from my hometown and he has a shoegaze sort of you could say act. And um it was very good. And you know, on Bandcamp it shows you how many people bought it and he didn't have so many. And I was like, This game's coming out, you know, I'll pay something and then give you some royalties for this uh putting your music in this game. But I have to perhaps give you a f- uh, actually we kept that guy's real band name in uh, most of everyone else had to have a a fake alias was in the universe or- that name was like apropos for the 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 time period mm-hmm. it was just an interesting strange name and it had no references or anything to like existing culture which sometimes is a problem and right. it, like if 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 someone's real I don't want to use like someone's real name in the game because everyone was supposed to be alternate history stuff so that we could write their little right. past for them. But uh, yeah, that was very cool. And he got he got a few more sales, but like uh, it's just not so accessible either. So so it wasn't like the one of the more popular releases. But yeah. yeah. And then there was a proggy jazzy one, too, from the Dropsy composer. Uh, Chris Schlarb, and he just he made that uh, for the project that uh, that yeah. Prague album. That's cool. I was really, uh, I don't know if impressed is the word, but I really enjoyed how you guys basically 
reinvented general MIDI, like in your, your, your own, like every song is going to use these exact samples mm. and that's just going to be the aesthetic of the soundtrack of this game. Yeah. It kept it co- pretty cohesive, uh, to just, and, and also when our, when our community, when they make samples or when they make songs with the sequencer, it just sounds like it fits without much effort. You know? Right. Yeah. And I also really enjoyed how, how jittery the playback was like, uh, that, that was unintentional, but it fits so well. Good. It's so appropriate <laughs> for good for the project. And like, even, even on like the, um, even on the official soundtrack, it's still kind of jittery. And it was just like chef yeah. kiss. This is so much what good. I'm glad you like, I'm glad it comes off as, as intentional. And I mean, it, clearly it's because you're like, you're triggering the sound on, uh, on a frame and not like, on yes. Any yes. sort of musical interval. Yeah, it's a frame limitations. It's because effectively we're using click and play to right. make up a, a sequence to music <laughs> engine. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I, it's it's extremely delightful. If you are a huge audio, you have to. It's not just audio nerd. You have to also be like into like the software, like programming into, it. Yeah, yeah, and like hardware limitations, and like yeah. it may be that very few people thought that was good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people get it at least, whether they think it's good or not. I guess they it fits. So. Okay, uh, James, tell us about yeah. Gottlieb Street Level Pinball. So this actually kind of calls back all the mundane things we've been talking about. Oh, excellent, excellent! Because I love accidental segues. So Gottlieb was making pinballs from basically the beginning of when people paid attention to them then uh, like their history from the 70s onwards is sort of like that of atari in that they were acquired by columbia and then they were sold off after the arcade crash and then the new company premier wanted to cut costs so they came up with this idea of doing what they called street level tables where they got rid of all of the interesting like toys and gimmicks and ramps and just had like a basic play field so that it was cheaper and, and that's how pinball that's where pinball came from right like original yeah. yeah yeah i got to play one of these games just today um i was out at free gold watch which is a local pinball parlor and they is had it, is hoops. it really like I used yeah. a t-shirt printing company called Free Gold Watch for they the Kickstarter. That, they might have that equipment in the back because it, they have this like back area where I don't know what they're doing. And I thought um, it was a really weird name for a, for a shirt fulfillment it, company. And it turns out... It, it's also a weird name for an arcade. Yeah. But they do have in there like a giant gold watch on the wall. Do you so get to I, keep it? I mean, they, it could be free to view, I guess. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> Pay to play. Right. But yeah, I got to play Hoops. And it's this is a table from 1991. And it, it really captures that, like, kind of trying to be cool in 1990 aesthetic. <laughs> uh-huh. Where, you know, like the sunglasses and skateboard type of thing. 
except these are like guys playing street ball. But it's also done like cheaply in certain ways, or like the playfield art is like that four color like comic book style. Do you think that's because it was cheap like, to cheap to print? Probably. I looked at their, the other tables um, that they made, and they they also look like they have this kind of like diminished aesthetic to them. Because I can't imagine like when they were trying to cut costs that they would cut costs by like paying the designers less. That's uh, presumably yeah. like a, a minimal yeah. percentage. Right. Of... Yeah. And see, that's the thing is that the table itself actually plays really well. Like it's, it's a fun game to play and like it's straightforward. Like you aren't confused by the layout, which is kind of the case with those more complicated tables where like you look at the back of the play field on some of them and like, you have no idea how it flows or anything. You just see a bunch of like toys and ramps. Right. Um, and I kind of like the simpler aesthetic where it's just more free because then you like, you see, you see what's going on in the gameplay. And like, I play pinball for the gameplay. And I know Jim has said that he, he kind of likes the, what he called uh, the Rube Goldberg part of it. Yeah, I, I like like I don't really enjoy the actual play of pinball, but I do really enjoy that people worked hard to build this contraption for me to for me yeah. to enjoy looking at. I think as a kid, I was soured on it because I would see those Rube Goldberg Goldberg esque ones, and like like I don't know, with the Terminator head bitten a ball somewhere else, and then I would not have enough money to actually do well or like you know and then so i'd 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 play once or twice and then be very disappointed that i yep i've tried a few times get more time out of bubble bobble yeah maybe nowadays so i find that like that kind of varies between the different eras like if you go to the really old games like before they did any solid state stuff and it's all just like bells and chimes those tables play slower and um like they're easier to get into in a sense because you're you're more like oh i i see what happened to me if i just nudge the table a little more next time then i'll actually get it oh that's Um, interesting but when you get to those 90s tables like they're they play really fast and so you have to already know that like okay i'm going to catch the flipper get control of the ball and then make a shot this exact ramp over here and I'll just shoot that ramp over and over, right? Wow. Yeah, and so, pre- pre- presumably this is because like the people who were making pinball in the '90s were making them for people who'd been playing pinballs for 40 years at that point. Yeah, there's an element of that. You know, they were able to put in more complicated video game type stuff in the '90s, and so they did. And so all of those games have like lots of scoring rules, lots of different modes. You know, they'll they'll have little mini games in them some of them and i find that a lot of that stuff is not the appeal it's it's more like this is making it more like a video game right yeah and were there i'm guessing yes but in pinball culture like hardcore pinball gamers who would who would complain if like a table was not complex enough or yeah there's definitely a bias towards that like um if you go on uh, Pinside, uh, that's the website where like you have forums and you have like ratings and all of that kind of stuff. 
and there's a definite bias towards um, specifically the Valley Williams tables because um, so that group um, during the late seventies through the nineties, they were kind of dominant. They had, you know, all of the most elaborate designs and they generally sold the most. So most of the games you've played were probably a Williams table. And those are like generally like fast playing competitive games. They have complex rule sets. They, you know, they also have like the gimmicks and the toys and stuff, but uh, it's definitely a case of like more is better with those games. Right. Yeah. And so like I, when I, when I talk about these street level games that Gottlieb made, it's, it's the polar opposite of that. that they're, they're just like bare bones, this open play field. Like they still have like, voice samples and like an fm synth for the music definitely well, yeah, software like, is basically free yeah like they, they can do the software and so the rule set of those games they're still like somewhat sophisticated but they aren't like massively complicated with like all this different stuff that you could keep track of i have to say when you started talking about it was called street level pinball and it was yeah. a cost-cutting thing I thought the cost-cutting measure was that they weren't going to put legs on the pinball table. That's I what I thought. Legs, yeah, I don't think the legs are most of the cost of these things. <laughs> yeah, I, that was, <laughs> I was, I believed you though. I was like, oh, huh, interesting. Yeah, I, I was imagining like children in like, I don't know, 1890 with like a cardboard or wood thing on the yeah. ground, knocking little balls around or something. And I thought yeah. that's what street level. Uh, see, I, I find the name really interesting because it's kind of like one of those very trying to be cool names right you know it's like oh this game isn't like it's cheap it's it's, it's street got urban level cred yeah there's a um there's a pinball museum in on alameda um i think it's called lucky juju and if you go in there you can go in there and trace the history of where pinball came from and it's it's super interesting like the the thing that reminded me of it when you were uh, talking about James, you were talking about um, how the games were much slower in the fifties. The thing that struck me about the earlier games is that they were much more games of chance. Like they evolved mm -hmm. from being pure games of chance, literally to being like games where you got, you have these tiny flippers that allow you some control over the, over the ball, but like there's no way a skilled player is going to definitely succeed. Because it's just going to sometimes go between the huge gap between them. Yeah, and there's there's always an element of that because it's the game played with actual physical objects, and so the mechanisms will fail. They'll, they'll they'll change even as the game's being played. Right. Um, and that makes it you know it, it makes it a lot closer to like playing a sport in that sense because you're like the play field's not going to be the same every day. You yeah. Know? Yep. With video games, like you always expect that, like, oh, if I if I get things frame perfect, then it'll always be exactly the same every time, and that's that's the, actually a kind of strange and unnatural expectation. Yeah, it is. It is weird, and that kind of makes me. Um, I'm imagining now, like, an alternate reality form of video game where it's based on analog computers where there are just slight variations in every calculation. I don't think it would actually affect anybody except for speedrunners. Yeah. So remember, I think we've talked about this book before, Jim. 
the the alternate reality in which like you can't synthesize sound or play it out of speaker. Oh so, yeah, we, like, the, the reality that never invented the speaker. Yeah, and so um, your your sound card is a room full of instruments like a calliope where like there's like <laughs> 20 horns all in a row and little uh actuators to squeeze the bulb on the horn this is such a good idea and such a terrible <laughs> idea but it would be like you know how i don't know if you um were around for like the the early 90s when game developers were targeting all these different weird midi playback devices like would, yeah like the like the mt32 and opl yeah yeah i'm just imagining like it would be that except like even like okay here's call of duty 2019 <laughs> right. we have the the the, the screaming man. simulator and the screaming man. Yeah. <laughs> and like if you if you want um the the vers- verisimilitude of real warfare you need a bunch of different screaming men uh, right. what you need is the whole artillery setup right yeah yeah it's a, like it, you'd have somebody's mansion and they'd have like cannons and you know uh, various small arms and maybe some explosives set up so that when they go to play the game then they get the real experience of like hearing warfare right, right ex- except their their younger brother the the prankster switched the pneumatic tubes on the horn and the artillery sounds. <laughs> nice. I keep thinking of what the screaming man would be, and I'm thinking uh, those toys that you squeeze that fill with yeah. air. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> sounds exactly right. And maybe with like a um, uh, a mechanical mouth to shape the sound. Yeah. Well, what would happen when if speakers were invented after everyone was so entrenched in their strange. Well, yeah, then you would have a stimulated version of all of those things. Right. Which would be different from a sample, right? It would, it would have to, like, physically model everything. Right, Because yeah. otherwise it's not authentic. Right, yeah, it's it's like a analog modeling synthesizers. But some people would still insist that we, the originals are better, and they, they'd buy them up, you know, and then never use them. They would be tucked away in, like, a, a back closet. Right, where they would occasionally just accidentally scream. Have any of you heard? There's not one genre of it, and I'm not gonna poop on it or anything. But but steampunk music, like from the steampunk oh. subculture, it basically sounds like like Evanescence or like uh, a gothy new metal okay. stuff, but with accordions. I find and like you know. The, the 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 costumes. So, so so no electric guitar is what you're saying. Like, it's probably an acoustic guitar with like a slight overdrive, maybe. <laughs> okay. Like it, it has a little uh. folk thing to it. Uh, but I'm mad at them for not thinking of what 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 you guys just thought of and and <laughs> and getting one of those organs with all the things you pull and the pedals. Yeah. They couldn't afford it, probably, but they they could like sneak into an amusement park after right. hours, steal some time on the Calliope. Right. I feel like that would be an amazing service for like somebody who owns a machine like that. You send them a MIDI file, and then they send you back a wave file of the playback on this device. There's definitely some services that do that. I think there's like a robotic percussion one. 
Okay, yeah. I was just there are definitely pipe organists who do this for people, but they just play it themselves. Oh yeah, that's just like that's just Fiverr.com. Yeah, it's Fiverr, yeah. I I was thinking about like the the guitar reamping services where you like send them a raw signal and and uh, a requested amp configuration and they play it back for you. Okay, I wanted to talk about the prompt is my new life sleeping like Darth Vader. Oh no. <laughs> uh I've been um wondering for years whether I have sleep apnea and I finally got around uh, getting tested. And I was like, one of the reasons it took so long was that I was worried that the sleep study would be a pain in the ass because I'd heard like, you have to go in there, you have to sleep in this strange room and there are these machines attached to you. But uh, it turns out nowadays they send you home with the machine and it's just like you stick your finger in this probe and the probe measures your blood oxygenation levels while you're sleeping. Um, hmm. And then you, you take it back and you drop it off. And then they tell you whether you uh, have been diagnosed positive later. And it turns out I do have moderate sleep apnea, which in my case means I stop breathing 25 times an hour, which is moderate. Apparently, apparently like normal is five and under, which still seems pretty high to me, but okay. Uh, and so I have this machine now. I haven't used it yet. I have it set up next to the bed ready for me to start tonight where i have mm. to learn to sleep wearing this mask that um blows air into my mouth at, on a like not at my not at the pace i choose but at like a fixed rate and i'm i'm super excited like i <laughs> <laughs> so my few relatives of mine that are very close to me uh two of them have been diagnosed with this and they both got machines and as far as i know they both aren't using them because it's too uncomfortable yeah and so I, I know you probably have to acclimate but i know some people like if you're claustrophobic you probably just can't use them like you'd be trying to sleep like through an adrenaline rush but i don't have that problem it's just weird it's just like i've got this all this weird shit on my face it, it's definitely going to take some acclimating too mm. I'm at least for now. I'm uh, intent on on learning to make this work. Good. <laughs> it frustrates me a lot that my family refuses to use their machines because I mean, like, I understand if they were claustrophobic or something, but it's a luxury to be able to have have such a thing in yeah. some way. Uh, and I want them to stay alive. Also, is part of it. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like there's some degree of like selfishness there where like, well, if I die in my sleep, I won't have to worry about using this goddamn machine anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like a lot of life temptations, right? Is uh, You say, oh, I'm going to eat better. And then you come in the office and you, you like people are handing out candy and you're like, OK, well, I'll have candy today. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's super, super hard. Well, and, and like the other thing that they suggested, well, it was like if you lose a bunch of weight, maybe you won't have sleep apnea anymore. So like, that's also another option, also extremely difficult to do, but yeah, like there's definitely a, um, an element of, I will never regret this because if something bad happens, I won't be around to regret it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I can definitely, I can understand that psychology. 
Well, what it makes me think of is uh, some people live their lives with a lot of urgency where they're like the moment they get out of like high school, they're going across the world on like some adventure and like they get married a year later and then they get divorced a year after that. There are a lot of people that have these like amazing careers that go like that. And then there are other people who do things very safely, I guess. Is like they, they follow what they're expected to do and uh, they don't take that kind of risk. Mm-hmm. And I feel like on a micro scale, like using this machine or not using this machine is sort of like making a decision for one or the other. That's that's interesting. I I wonder to what extent I agree with this, because like I, I am sympathetic to the people who don't want to make the change because in many, many respects, that's kind of me. That's me being, that's me like understanding laziness. That's me understanding like, I just don't feel like it. So there is so much of that in my life. Uh, I kind of have to fight against to get anything done at all. I don't think I would categorize that. I feel like that would be, that would be analogous to um, the, the people who are doing things safely. But in my case, it's just wanting to do things the easy way. And the easy way is comfortable and uh what i've been doing already and not wanting to change so so more like more like an escape not doing a thing because for right now you can ignore it yeah that sounds right yeah and i think that's kind of on a spectrum between the the huge risk taking and like the risk minimization and then also, like, just escaping into something. I think that's also another point on the spectrum. Right, yeah. All right, thanks so much for being on, guys. All right. Yeah, yeah um, uh, James, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can follow my Twitter, Triple Fox. You can look at my itch stuff, username Triple Fox. And uh, you can look at my website, uh, ludamix.com. All right. Uh, Jay? Uh, at Jay Tholen or Tolan. Hmm? Do you not know how to pronounce the name, your last name? No. That's a topic maybe for another day, but yeah. That's going on the list. There's <laughs> a, uh, there's uncertainty, but I, I think Tolan is probably I, the I way more people would say it. I think I like Tolan more because okay. I have a list. Okay, yeah. Tolan. Okay, yeah. Tolan. I'll I'll start correcting people when they say it wrong. <laughs> thanks, thanks. All right, I'll talk to you guys later. All right, bye-bye. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. If you'd like to add content to the Topic Bucket, you can email it at topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find the games that I've made at twinbeard.com. You can find me on the Fediverse at magwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. We currently don't have a way for you to give us money, but one day we might, so keep an eye on topiclords.com in case that changes. See you next episode.